This is the Straight Dope Podcast, and part of this podcast includes some partners. One of those partners is Mile High Shooting. They are a one-stop shop for optics mounts, suppressors, components, firearms, magazines, nylon gear, and more. They support law enforcement and military programs and anything that you're going to need for Precision Rifle Journey. They are a dealer, the dealer for Accuracy International, Spur, and have a lot of ammo and reloading components. So go to their website, milehighshooting.com, and support a company that supports shooters like crazy. Um, I have seen them put hundreds to thousands of dollars on most of the matches that I've been to myself. They give back as much or more than all of the top sponsors for matches, which is very hard to do. And they often have sales and discounts in addition on their website when you go there to visit. It's a great place for factory ammunition and uh, other stuff. So check it out, milehighshooting.com. Thank you. It's hard to, have you ever, I wonder, I wonder about this with, with you and Francis, because uh, you guys talk to each other so much and you're going to, but then when you, it just isn't what it was originally. You cut out there, but I think I got the point. Uh, basically you have a conversation before you start recording and you try to recreate it or go farther in depth and then you just can't while you're recording it just doesn't come out right 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 you know you think like yeah this was like a brilliant conversation let's just repeat it all and then you, you miss <laughs> yeah. all the points yeah it, it does happen uh quite often especially when you know it's being recorded and you're trying to think about a better way to say it when it, there's no better way you already said it the best way you know and then it's hard right, to right. recreate it exactly yeah i mean I, like you know being a little bit older and having done a lot of things like my brain you know, pulls from experiences and cross bridges and links. And sometimes like that initial insight, you know, I have, it, it's more than then if I focus on it, some of that peripheral stuff kind of goes away. So like, if I don't get it that first time, chances are I'm going to miss some of that inspiration. And uh, yeah. And while you're talking to somebody, uh, you want to let them finish their point before you start you know, commenting on it, but then you might lose, like you said, the older you get, you might lose your point by the time they're done talking or, a look, or some of the context of it. So yeah, it's, uh, it's fun. The, the conversation point is definitely, that's the way we run our podcast, but I like some of your podcasts too, where it's just your stream of consciousness and nothing can stop you. If you're just, you know, talking. That's the only thing I could do is like, all right, I got an idea. <laughs> I don't even think it through very much. I have a blank piece of paper and then I just talk until I, feel like okay i just took a long pause i guess i should hit stop um yep but i haven't shot for months now and uh how you feel so, I, I feel all right like uh the hardest part is just you know feeling normal and knowing that you can't do any of the things that are normal for you and so your brain you know tries to make sense of it and uh it, you know i mean like Learning to play guitar and that kind of stuff is a good distraction, but it's time consuming. And, and then you realize like, you know, hours have gone by and you haven't done 
anything responsible. So it's, you know, it's just, I guess it's a constant struggle either way. Like I, I tend to just fuck shit up whether I want to or not, uh, by putting things on back burners that should be on the front and front to the back. But, but I, I, I like, we've been talking about the idea of, of uh, dry fire yeah. and dry fire is one of those topics that everybody's heard of and all walks of shooter talk about it. And yet when you really dig into it, the methods, the techniques, what they're looking for, what they do are all so wildly different that it's like this blanket statement for just basically having an unloaded rifle and doing whatever the fuck you want with it. And, and so, you know, if you tell somebody, yeah, like, oh, I just go, you know, go get an unloaded rifle and fuck with it. You know, that's dry fire. They're not necessarily going to get better, but you're one of those people who have gotten better and put a lot of critical thinking into components of dry fire. And, and so I wanted to just get you on and, and, and hear your process. Yeah, uh, a couple of points that come to mind right away is, uh, like you said, dry fire is like a super sexy buzzword, buzz term in, you know, the shooting circles that we we hang out in. And I think people are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get the dry fire stuff and then it's going to solve all my problems or at least, you know, bring them to the to the light of day and I'm, then I can work on them. And then they get the adapter, they get the, the cards and the data and then and uh, whatever, the billboards, and they just never do anything with it. I know so many people that have the kits and they don't. Uh, they just shoot their club matches once a month and then get disappointed when they're not getting any better. So uh, just having the stuff, just like having an awesome rifle, I mean, you have to go shoot. So uh, it does take work. It's not like something that is just going to be like, oh, yes, it is free because you don't have to spend live rounds and, and components and you don't have to you know, wear and tear in your barrels and stuff like that. But it takes just as much, if not more work to actually get a, a huge benefit from it, you know? Yeah. You have to know other, exactly what you're doing. You have to know what you're yeah. looking for. Yeah. The other thing is that I, I will say that it is single-handedly uh, made me not single-handed. It, it is the largest component of what made me the shooter that I am today. Um, now, I, the caveat is what you described is you have to know what you're looking for. And I must have had an innate sense of understanding intuition, intuition of what I should be looking for when I was doing it. Uh, because there's no other explanation to how I only shot paper at a hundred yards and only record. And in the course of, you know, a few years, won my first national match, there's no other real explanation. I really feel like I have a, an ability to look inward and, and instead of blaming things and try to figure out what is causing the rifle to move, to wobble uh, after I, you know, press the trigger, causing the radical to move. Like that has to be something that you are honest with yourself about. And you really are looking for the benefit instead of just putting in the time, because it's not, it's not a quantity of hours of dry fire that helps you. It's the quality of the time that you are behind the rifle. So you just need to be looking for, uh, the root causes and it's, it's internal. Yeah. Yeah. The, you're blipping a little bit on my end, but my guess is you going to pick that up and not blip it out here. I'm on this trail that the service goes, well, I, you know, I could say that, you know, you're, you're, I mean, yeah, you, you walk the walk, you, you did it. It paid dividends and you got to the level that you're at. I can say that for myself, it was almost identical except that I didn't, 
didn't dry fire. I shot paper at 100 and, and uh, you know, changed my shooting and understanding how I think about it. But now, like, I, I've got this um, monthly training group and a huge component of it is dry fire. And all of the dry fire, I always tell them, these are cognitive exercises. Like, these aren't just, you know, run the, run the bull a hundred times and, you know, make, make five good, clean, you know, trigger presses or you know, whatever, whatever you hear. I'm trying to make up a generic, like, this is what I do dry fire. You know, I lay down in the living room floor while I'm watching TV and, you know, I run the bull a thousand times. And, uh, you know, it's like, well, all right. Like, that's cool. or are you being sarcastic? I'm being sarcastic. Um, you know, that, that's stuff that I've heard okay. people say, like, oh, well, I'm watching TV. Bad, I Oh, no, no. Yeah, I was, I was saying that, like, you know, in the past I had heard, you know, this is what I do when I'm dry firing, you know, I, and, and, then, and then it's basically just mindless reps. And it's like, man, okay, now we, we got to take all the mindless reps out and make them mindful reps. And it doesn't take that much before your brain is kind of overloaded. Um, yeah, well, I will make a comment on the mindless reps because I think there is value in certain aspects of that. Uh, one of the things that I trained very early on with my breathing cycle and link that to running my bowl, and that is something you can absolutely do sitting on your couch or laying next to the couch or whatever. So I'll just describe it and tell me if it resonates with you. So my hand, my firing hand touching the bowls is my gateway for my inhale. So after I fire, I'll, I should already be at my natural respiratory pause. I engage a trigger uh, that the hand, firing pin drops. And then as soon as I go up to grab the bolt handle, now I'm inhaling again. And then as I'm closing the bolt handle, I'm exhaling. So literally it's, it's physiological at this point. I cannot run my bolt without inhaling and exhaling really quickly. And it is the same pace as my bolt run. So if I'm running slow bolt, I inhale slow and I close it slow. And those are usually times where I'm trying not to disturb the rifle, but there's times where I'm trying to just get another round on target and my breathing cycle matches my bolt run. Uh, and it, it is purposeful for the scenario that I'm trying to shoot in. So that is an example. Like you said, it could be mindless, but it might be purposeful to do something, do an exercise like that. I would just lay on the ground. And uh, when I, my body felt like I needed to breathe, I would just run my bolt back, inhale, run my bolt forward, exhale. And it's value. It's value added. If you're yeah, at that point sure. where that's not second nature yet, you know, there's a lot of shooters that still don't breathe. They don't have a, they don't have a plan for, for breathing. Right. Right. Well, breathing's tricky because you have conscious control and subconscious is going to control it if you're not. So, you know, I, I, but, but I would argue that what you're doing is still cognitive practice because if you're not thinking about inhale on the grabbing the bolt, right? You're not going to, you're not going to inhale on grabbing the bolt until it becomes subconscious. So you, you actually have to think about it, right? You, you wouldn't be able to right. listen to an audio book and do that simultaneously and pay attention to the audio book. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I could now. Um, but yeah, for the previous 10 or 20,000 reps I did on it, I definitely had to consciously think about it. Now, is yeah. it perfect? I would say maybe no, but I would venture to guess that if you, videotaped me on every stage at a match it'd be pretty much you know nine times out of ten you'll see me inhale and exhale when i run the bowl and to me that's yeah. a process now that i don't have to think about and i've had many people uh, ro's you know get close to me to try to get the shot timer to go off in the last round or whatever and afterwards they're like 
holy crap, like, first of all, your breathing cycle is super audible. And that's intentional on my part because I want to know that it happened. And then um, second of all, your fundamentals are like every single time you're doing the same thing. So yeah, like I, I feel like that's, that's motions by fire pretty much. Yeah. One of the things that I have like my folks do is we isolate fundamentals and I think about where, where they're playing the biggest role and how to understand them. Because I, I don't think that, you know, well, when, when I was shooting early on, I remember seeing a video of Jake Fibbert and Jake Fibbert has his, his breathe, trigger, follow through. And he did the same thing. Breathe, exhale, close the bolt, you know, pull the trigger, follow through. And, and I, I practiced that, practiced it, practiced it. But then later on, I realized that for me, that sequence wasn't as effective, but, but the components of that are necessary. So what for you produces the best results and, it, and there's a little bit of a play. So, so I do the same thing you do more or less, except that I inhale on the closing of the bolt, not pushing the bolt forward. I breathe in. And that was a big difference technically on how I shoot then inhale while I'm grabbing the bolt and then, and then uh, exhale and shoot and and I, my guess is you probably think well that that's gonna that's gonna add time to the process but for me pushing the bolt forward is such a you know you're already moving the rifle and so moving the rifle with the inhale forward was an easier cue for me to follow through and it was a reminder from either end like oh i gotta close the bolt i'll breathe you know i just end up inhaling or if i need to inhale like naturally, because I've been running some of the field matches here, you know, you'll run a couple hundred yards into a stage and then your heart rate is high and your breathing is, is off. And yeah. if you force your breathe, if, you know, I think if you force yourself out of your breathing cycle, everything gets kind of fucked up. But if, if, if you are like, okay, I'm ready to shoot, but you're breathing really hard that you can't control that as much without adverse effects so it just, I just time it to like uh, like you know i'm going to close it on my inhale so that i can shoot my trigger i can do my trigger press as soon as i yeah i need to exhale and that i know that i can settle the rifle in that time and and so i can be you know at a high output physiologically and shoot better if i time it if i if, if, if i do it with the you know i'm pushing my bolt forward and closing it on the inhale then because I, I think I um when I was doing those events and then training for them what I would notice is let's say I'm running and I get my heart rate to like 180 if I inhale when I grab the bolt and exhale and it takes me a sec to settle the rifle and my heart rate is going I'm trying to stay in that respiratory pause longer than my body wants to allow me to not inhale again does that make sense right yeah absolutely so i, mean, the, I get it sounds you know, like you have a process oh, I mean, it's definitely different but. Yeah, yeah so so for me it was driven from the physiologic response to you know, getting rid of carbon dioxide right because if you're healthy carbon dioxide and then I get down and just that subtle difference between inhaling when I'm reaching for the bolt 
and inhaling, I'm closing the bolt. That's enough time that if it takes me a second to settle the rifle, my body's not going to want to gasp for air. Now, not under stress, it, it makes no difference at all. But, you know, again, like I like to do the events where we're physically fatigued or we're stressed um, physiologically going into the stage. And to me, like that, that's like two seconds. I need those two seconds, right? Yeah. I need those two or three seconds. Yeah, that's the difference of the, of the different type of competition for sure. Like I'm, I'm never out of breath um, on a PRS stage. Just It just doesn't happen. So I totally understand where you're coming from there. Yeah. So, but, but, it, you know, it's cool. It's cool that your mind, you know, went to the same place. Like you need to do this. And then I realized like, okay, I was, I was, I, I, I copied somebody cause that's what all shooters do. And then I realized, you know, his method doesn't work for me. How can I change it? And, you know, I know it's like, I'd be getting ready to shoot and then I got a gas for air. And then my, you know, I see my reticle moves and, you know, I was like, fuck, now I got to wait a whole breath cycle. And, it's like, man, I was, I was really close to shooting, but then you're, then you're compelled to like, okay, well, you know, do I, do I potentially jerk the trigger and just get it off or do I make sure it's another good breath cycle and, and, you know, being anal like we can be, I'm like, dude, I could save, you know, six seconds if I just, if I have to wait again. Ultimately it's going to add up to time, even though I'm, I'm, I'm potentially taking an extra second or two um on the front end i'm potentially you know shit if i have to do that on four or five shots you know that, that's almost a minute or two and uh and and, and and score for time a lot of times so um you know that minute or two makes a big difference when there's a bunch of good shooters out there um, yeah but I, so but again like i think that's cognitive I, I have people go through these exercises on paper and try to diagnose it but what I want to do is kind of hear how you split apart. Is there a progression? Like, do yeah. you have a progression that, that you think a shooter should say, okay, well, you know, if we're going to dry fire, let's start here. Like, you know, people, everybody wants to jump to, you know, super ultra advanced techniques, right? Like 90 degree direction of fire changes and 15 mile an hour winds, you know, and, and like, okay, how do you make that wind? To, and it's like, oh, all right, let's go back a little bit. Like, yeah, for um, sure. So I have like, uh, I'll just describe my journey through dry fire. Um, it, it started out to bring intimacy and familiarity with all of my gear to, you know, the most intricate level. And this is another reason why I tell people don't change gear all the time. If you haven't gone through this process uh, to understand where the, where the weaknesses are in your gear. And if you haven't gone through this process, um, you don't know that, but if you have gone through this process, you've already done all this homework. So for you to do that again, it's also painful, if that makes sense. So I, I'm very resistant to change my gear for two reasons. Number one, I have to learn it again. And number two, I already learned the other stuff so good that it's second nature. Either way I lose, unless this thing gives me a, a large advantage. So from the very beginning, my main motivation was to learn how my bipod adjusts, to learn where I want to have my bipod to set, to learn how the fill moves around in my bag and where my rifle balance point is. And like, these are all like super basic things that a lot of people overlook. And I'm, I'm hopefully I'm not making assumptions here, but I really think that's true that a lot of people don't spend the time to get intimate with every aspect of your rifle. Um, 
know how your magazines interact with the bag and so that you're not going to have misfeeds. I mean, I don't, I don't use dummy rounds very often when I'm dry firing, but if I get a new magazine or a new chassis, you better believe I am just to make sure that I, I don't have those issues. So anything gear related was my first priority. Um, I'm not sure if you had a similar experience, but I mean, you and I both been shooting for a long time. So at some point that becomes unnecessary, right? That, that aspect of it. Yeah. While you were saying that, um, it, it's not a process that I went through, but again, like, you know, my brain kind of just decides to, there's like a good idea fairy back there. And, uh, I was thinking like, okay, well, how would that apply to what you do? And I, and I, I distinctly remember you know, the precision matches that I've been to where, um, because, because, well, let me, let me preface that. When you say that, you're like, okay, well, you got to get familiar with your bipod. And I can imagine a lot of listeners being like, fuck, dude, I'm super familiar with my bipod. Like I put it down, I can put it up. Like what's this guy talking about? And I felt the same way until you go to a match and the props are pretty specific and whether they were thought through or not, the surface area that you put your rifle on is different in width and in length. And so what I'm thinking about are um, higher stages. Higher have different yeah. widths. They have different tread size. And if Absolutely. you, if you cannot instantly look at the width of a tire or the tread of a tire or the thickness or the distance between where your bipod's going to go, and get it there you're going to lose you're going to time out on the stage in a precision you're better off with just a bag if you're not intimate with your bipod and bag you're better off with just a bag and then you might be leaving points on the table or because there are tires because you're struggling yeah because there i mean i've literally seen tires where if you don't have a harris or if you have a sky pod it's basically too wide normally so then you got to pull them into the narrow one but people don't do that quickly so you see people with sky pods go up the legs stick out off the sides of the tires. Now they're canting and fighting with the bipods, you know, and then ultimately they time out where with the Harris, they're narrower. They just throw it down and shoot. And people go, oh, yeah, the Harris bipods are awesome. It's like, well, they're faster in that situation. But then the Skypod picks it up in a different one. And that, that's where I think that, hey, match directors can, can have a big influence on the gear that people bring. But also the shooter if you can't make those adjustments or just look at a prop, cause, cause you guys get to see the props in advance and know, okay, I'm going to put it on this setting to start with because, um, you know, my, my bipod legs won't work like, like this, or, or I need to slide it forward and then slide it back. And that, that absolutely, I agree. Like you can train that dry fire until it, you'll never get caught by it again. Right. Right. Yeah. And I don't want to dwell on the point too much, but I've seen people in a match, instead of adjusting their bipod on the clock, they will move their bag out of the way and put their hand under their bag just because they, they need more bipod height, but they, the bipod's either out of reach or they're too intimidated to reach up there and extend the legs. I mean, those irrational decisions are driven by a lack of training and a lack of familiarity with their, their gear. And that's fine. We all start somewhere. Um, but you can definitely avoid a lot of those frustrations by just being intimate with your gear. And it's not just the bag. Uh, your two round holder on the side of your rifle should be like second nature. I see people drop their mag because they didn't load 10 rounds and they only loaded nine and they um, ran out of ammo. And so they reached for their 
back mag pouch to get their other mag out when they still have that two round saver. It's just, it's not second nature for them to grab a, an extra round. So those are all little things that I practice dry and I practice live that particular instance, but you should be able to do it with your eyes closed without even looking in there. Um, yeah. There's just all sorts of things with people's gear uh, that, that you can learn and you should learn uh, while dry firing. It doesn't It's way cheaper. And then the second yeah. phase for me was learning my body shape, uh, and how to build stable positions. And I think this is intimidating for a lot of people, but, um, you have to listen to the radical and, and, you know, you have to experiment and what works for one person doesn't work for everyone. So, you know, take advice from, from pros and from people that you trust, but then you have to experiment. And one of my favorite things to do is to try to shoot the same prop, like 10 different ways. Like I force myself to get into weird positions just because, I can, and it doesn't cost me anything. And I try to come up with the weirdest ways to build a stable position because there's, it might not be the way that you approach that stage in the future, but you're going to learn something by doing that. And you might accidentally happen to encounter the best way for you while doing that. And uh, mm -hmm. so once you can build a stable position, um, then it becomes the point is how, long does it take you to build that position because i think that the most intimidating thing for prs shooters and a lot of competitive shooters is the clock once there's a clock involved um the your mind gets scrambled and you your anxiety level builds so up until this point where i can build a stable position you're i'm not even using the clock like don't even bother get that radical mm -hmm. movement down to zero or one tenth you know whatever your current wobble zone is like spend that week or two weeks or a month and just try to cut it in half and get it down to where, like I've heard you say it before, like on a rock pile, you should have zero wobble, right? I mean, if, if you don't have that, then that's where you need to be focusing. Don't worry about the clock yet. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Like with the equipment that we have, now granted, I can imagine some equipment where you're going to have a little bit of wobble, but you should be striving for no wobble. Like, and people say, well, yeah. how much wobble do you really have when you have a bag up on your tripod and you're standing on zero like there's no wobble um like you know oh well i get a lot of wobble well then i wouldn't i wouldn't pull the trigger right but, yeah. but i want to i'm just gonna like you know make a short story long or, or, or just point out the obvious here so far neither of us but particularly you haven't just talked about like okay i'm gonna recreate a stage and like pull the trigger a bunch like you haven't talked about pulling the trigger at all yet you've you've talked about you know, essentially how you think about dry fire and how you think about dry fire, I think breaks the mold when people started listening to this. Like, oh yeah, I know all about dry fire. How many people are building positions and checking for stability? How many people are having positions that require gear adjustment and then having to adjust it and figure out how long did that take? What steps did I have to make? What did I notice? You know, how, how did you make those decisions to be able to do that adjustment and is there a better way i mean in, in that regard you and i are in exact agreement that that's dry fire right it's not pulling the trigger necessarily right I mean, you can pull the trigger 100 but i mean we'll get there I, in that conversation i'm sure but that's i agree with you it's a waste of time to talk about that stuff without talking about in my opinion what should come first so i think we're in agreement there yeah so when you're doing that, and, and so you've talked about, you know, building a solid position, understanding your body. How are you, is kind of a rhetorical question, but, but how, 
how do you measure, how do you gauge that? Like, what are you using to know this is a good position? What, what are you yeah. using to know, uh, oh, this is a solid position that I would shoot from versus this one isn't a good position? Because I imagine some people are like, well, how do I know if it's a good position if I don't shoot? This is, uh, this is the question that almost doesn't, shouldn't need to be asked, but I'm so glad you asked it because it seems so obvious to you and I talking, dancing around the answer to this question on the phone right now, but it might not be obvious to everyone. So I'm glad you asked it. So I will say there is, there's two things that I'm really focused on. Um, number one is reticle movement. And that's obvious. People are, you know, like, oh yeah, wobble zone. But the other thing is, um, do I feel any tension anywhere in my body? And if I do, can I hold that? Hopefully I don't, but if I do, can I hold that position for an almost indefinite amount of time? Because if you can't, then, you know, the fundamentals of marksmanship, you know, say that you should have a relaxed body and you should be using bone structure whenever possible to link yourself to the ground and to the prop. Um, if I, I kind of close my eyes and if I can think from my, the, the top of my head all the way down to my toes and I don't like imagine any muscle group as tense, then, I mean, that's about as good as you can get. So if your position is comfortable, it's stacking bone structure, your radical's not moving. Like, um, what else is there? I, I think I, I do want to go back a little bit before that, because what we're talking about right now is natural point of aim, right? Mm -hmm. So I segregate natural point of aim into two categories. And the first category, in my opinion, is the most important, and that is the rifle's natural point of aim without you as part of the equation. Uh, I'm pretty sure I said this on our podcast before, and if I haven't, um, you know, I'm sorry, but the rifle's natural point of aim means that the rifle is pointing at the target without you touching the rifle at all. And this is a drill I do with students, but even in matches, I will do this on the clock. Like, I will relax my grip on the gun relax my shoulder away from the gun and see where that rifle wants to be pointed. You can do this very subtly without, without actually letting go of the rifle, but at the very beginning, and especially in dry fire when you're at home and nobody's watching, like just put the rifle in a bag, settle it in the bag, and is it pointed at the target? And it sounds really silly, but my rule of thumb is if I'm more than a target width away from the target, it's not a natural point of aim. I'm willing to clamp the rifle to the bag and steer it a little bit, but it, it's my limit is basically the width of the target. And some props are harder than others to get that to happen. Um, so once I've segregated the rifle's NPA and say that the rifle has the natural point of aim, then I'll interact with it, with my body, my shoulder, my build my position around that rifle's natural point of aim. So that's kind of how I, I look at it. And that's how I know that I am building a stable position that is going to be successful under recoil, um, you know, and that's, I don't know. Does that make sense? Hey, you still, are you there? Hey. Yeah, I got full bars. That must have been you. Yeah, I, I was, it wouldn't reconnect. And I was like, holy shit. So I had to leave and join and leave and join. And uh, all right, well, there'll be a big gap. I'm going to turn off the video so I can shove it back in my pocket. But uh, okay. good to see you there, driving. I don't know how much you got. How much of that did you get where I was talking about segregating rifle MPA from, from your body's MPA? Uh, let me, oh, I'll just, I'll just, I'll, I'll, uh, so where, where I got disconnected, basically, as, as far as I know, I, I heard most of it. And then I started to ask, 
Um, oh, you said, you said when, when you see a shift that's larger than the width of the target, you know that it's not good. And I wanted to stop because I know people shoot at different size targets and just say that for you, your criteria, um, you're shooting pretty small targets if, if, a, if a listener is listening. And so I was asking you, like, you know, if you're going to say on average, how wide are the targets that you shoot in MILF? Yeah, I mean, five to six tenths is a normal PRS style match. Um, okay, so about know, a, a, a one and a half MOA, something like that. So, um, you know, at, at, at uh, you know, 12 inch plate at 800 yards. Or, or so, something like that, you know, um, uh, you know, eight inch plate at 500 yards. Um, or if, 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 a, if a user sees, so, but you're aiming center, are you measuring the whole width of the plate or if it leaves yeah, it's the not plate? Even, it's not even so center. much that I'm measuring the plate. Um, it's that, you know, my eye is just saying, okay, am I, am I close to the target with the rifles NPA? Um, and that's just a rough number i'm using so if i see a gap on the gotcha. side of the target that's half the width of the target or whatever i'm okay with you know shuffling the bag and clamping it down a little bit to to make sure it's, it's on the target uh ultimately the best case scenario is would be as if when i settle the bag into the target or into the prop and the rifle it it is aiming at the center of the target without me even touching the rifle and when i have people do this for me uh or when i'm trying to train somebody on this i'll say shuffle the rifle, settle it in the bag. I say, saw it into the bag, you know, so the fill is settled and get it on target so that it is on the plate and then let go of it. And I want to double check you. I'm just going to lean my head over without touching the rifle and I'm going to look through the scope. And as soon as they settle it in and they go to let go of the rifle and get off to show me that it's on center, they're like, oh, wait, it moved. Like, well, yes, that's what we're trying to prevent. Try again. And then they'll, they'll start to get the feel of, what it looks like or what the rifle feels like when it's not fighting back, if that makes sense. Cause you can, you can start 30 degrees off target, pan it to the target in the bag and kind of just twist all of that fill to one side. And then you can still be really stable with zero wobble in that scenario. But if you mm-hmm. have recoil, it's going to want to go back at least halfway or something to where it came from. I mean, there's no question about it that that mm-hmm. rifle came from a place and it wants to go back there unless you resettle that fill. Right, 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 right. And then what I would expect are, 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 are three, three different options, right? Option A, you hit the target, right? Because that can happen, right? Even if it's yep. bad, you can, you can still hit a target with a, you know, I mean, that's just how, how shooting goes. You can make a bad shot and hit a target. So option A, you hit it, you don't, and it reinforces that bad habit. B, you miss off to the right. I'm just whenever I think I have a tendency to think right to left. So uh, I I imagine torquing the rifle into the left. Uh, Option B would be you miss off to the right because it's going back towards its natural aim and you think, oh shit, it's wind. And then you make an adjustment and then you, then you shoot off the left or something like that. Or if, if you didn't change the natural point aim, you could probably correct that and then hit it because you're just correcting off of a naturally misaligned rifle. But then option, option Three, I think, is even worse, and that's you lose your sight picture, and you have no idea what happened, <laughs> right? Yep. And so, um, but but it's you know that that's one of those things where you think like, okay, well, what's the right answer? And it's like, well, I don't, I don't know the right answer, but there are more, there are a lot of explanations for what happens, and you have to be able to diagnose that with repetition, 
And then ultimately what you said, like, you know, take it to paper at a hundred, recreate it, see the patterns that you see, make a mental note of that. Cause if it happens, it'll happen at a hundred. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, yep. and, and it's worth, I think it's worth, you know, whatever, if a bullet, if shooting is like $2 a shot, I mean, I, I don't put a price tag too much on, on training because like, I think that all of the paper shooting I do is worth it's weight in gold to understand things because then you don't say, well, it's one of these three options. You know, I say, well, yeah, my, I, I'm betting that it's this one. And, and more often than not, I'm right from having done those things. So how many, how do you record your observations and keep track of that stuff? Because, because you can't just do it and be like, Oh yeah. Okay. This is good. Because we're ultimately that's enough reps and enough data points that you kind of have to have a record of it, right? Yeah, you're saying, how do I record dry fire, or how do I just take notes at a match? Or no, no, uh, we're, yeah, no, just dry fire. Like, um, like I, I, I guess I'm making an assumption about you, but the assumption that I'm making is that, like me, you realize that all of this data isn't going to do a ton unless you record it so that you could think about it afterwards. Yeah, I, um, it's hard to record, like, how, I guess you can record how fast it takes you to build a position, and that's something I definitely did and was very cognizant of at the beginning, because I thought speed was uh, what I was doing the dry fire for, and it turns out it wasn't. Um, and it is, but it, at the very end of the process, I work on speed. Um, I, so I record speed, but I literally video recorded um I would come up with a scenario. I would video record the, my very first try at it so that I had like a baseline. And then I would watch that video probably three to five to 10 times and look at the time signatures and make some notes of how long it took me to do certain things or where my opportunities for improvement were. And then I would practice it like eight, 10, 20, 15 times or two weeks or whatever until I felt like I was an expert level at it. And then I would, sorry, ran on some Roman strips there. Uh, then I would record it again where I felt like it was my best effort, my best um, success at that particular activity. And then I could compare those two. And I had those two saved on my phone. Um, I, I love watching videos of myself shoot because even in the most perfect scenarios where I've had, had the best success, I still see opportunity for improvement. And we all have to be striving for, you know, perfection. It's a, it's a journey, not a destination. And, and once you once you sit back and you say, okay, I'm as good as I'm going to get, then uh, people are going to get light years ahead of you very quickly. So I'm always looking for opportunities for improvement. And my biggest fear or disappointment or concern is that one day I stop seeing those things because that uh, I know that they're there and it just means that they're not visible to me anymore. <laughs> you know, it's a very scary, real possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I like that. I mean, I, I obviously I video everything, so um, I think that's cool. My phone is like act with recording people or me shooting and doing the drills and stuff like that because it, right, you can go back and visually get an idea of what what's happening. Slow down, go forward and backward, and and uh, but 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 either way, you you've got whether you write something down for recording, you have video that you could review and think about, and and I like that you consider it kind of a. A journey. I, I would describe it as an art or something like that, where even though we have outlets that 
obviously are clearly defined and there are goals in there, but the idea is just to become better according to your, whatever it is, right. That, that you're, you're, you're using it as an outlet for, and that, that could change over time, but your relationship with the rifle is going to improve across all of those outlets, which is, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. So yeah. And if, your idea of what's good and what is better is always changing because the scope is, is getting harder and your abilities are always getting better. So one of the most painful things for me is to, um, there's two things because I'll, I'll bring it back to music going back and listening to one of the first albums I ever recorded when I was 16 or 17. That is, that is freaking painful. I don't like, <laughs> I don't like hearing where I was compared to where I am. And the same thing goes with dry fire. If you look at those dry fire videos that I have on the dry fire training group, Facebook page, the first few, um, you know, the video and audio quality are lacking, but even my, um, abilities, you can tell they're just totally different. And I think that's cool, but I also think it's, um, not comfortable to review because I look at them and I say, Oh man, why was I doing that there? But it took that whole journey for me to think that way, to think that what I did at the beginning was crap, you know? Yeah. But, but I mean, that, yeah, A, that's important. And it's also revealing because at the time, if you asked you, you would say like, man, I'm, I'm, I got this pretty figured it's out. perfect. Yeah. Right. And, and then, and then yeah. you realize, and just having that constant reminder, especially of yourself of like, you thought you knew it all. Now looking back, you realize you didn't. And in the future, you're going to be doing the same thing for you today. And having that as a reminder and then, you know, being able to record it and document it and say, you know, I, I'm going to put my ego and embarrassment aside and just, I'm making a record of, of my growth. I mean, that's what gun around the sun, the Instagram was exclusively I'm documenting my rifle journey period. Like, and I got shit on there that, yeah, I look back on my company. God, this is crazy. Um, and I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not as critical as excited. Like, look how far I've come, and and and, and that, that that's indefinite, right? You can just do that forever and forever and forever. And you, you see that with guys that are just in love with whatever their discipline is. One of my big projects and goals is to experiment, play with, and compete in the air gun phenomena that seems to be coming out, but has been around for a long time. Utah Air Guns is at the center of that. They bring in high-end specialty air gun components. They bring in rifle components, and they custom-build people high-performance air rifles. Air guns uh, often are divisions or used in like rimfire-type competitions, but they also have standalone competitions. I believe that when it comes to training, certain elements of all rifle shooting that have to do with fundamentals. The air rifle is the ultimate system to do that. So I'm going to be having podcasts and discussions and data unfolding about the use and benefits of air rifles for those specific components and also discuss how they might not help with other components, right? Which makes sense. If you're going to shoot a 338, air rifle may help with some of that. And it might not help with other parts, but I think that Utah air rifles is leading the charge. And so I have ordered 
an air rifle to have in our classes for craft studies, for measurements, and for data. And I want to encourage you guys to look into their systems and reach out to Utah Air Guns. Follow them on Instagram and follow us. It will not only be on this podcast, but also on Sniper's Hide. There's a new air gun section, an entire section devoted to air rifles and what people are doing and unfolding so that we can kind of hive mind and source data and then send you back to a shop that can put together a system for you that performs at the level that you needed to perform at, period. So until I have more to say, uh, go check them out and hit up Sniper's Hide, check out the thread, and stay tuned for episodes revolving around or including data from the rifles that the guys at Utah Air Guns put together for us. And yeah. uh, it changes forms, you know. I think that you can, you can. Uh, let me think. Like, you know, when I started shooting, people would talk about, you know, the the prior heroes of shooting. A lot of them don't shoot anymore because people don't stay in the community super long time. And they would talk about these people with reverence. And, then, you know, like, man, somebody at the top of the game, like, why would they quit? Why would they not shoot? Like, man, I never want to do that. And it's like, well, you know, that that's part of life. That's a judgment thing that, that, you know, people evolve through life, but, but you are on your own journey and uh, people that stay in it, they have like this valuable depth and you might not relate to what they do, but they could provide that guidance. And that's why I think like all the podcasts that are out now are pretty cool because people are sharing their journey and everybody's input is like, you know, I don't think it totally conflicts, but it's also like wildly different because of how we, how we, how we think about that. So let me ask you, you have, first of all, you've mentioned the, the dry fire training group on Facebook, but, but, you know, just because people are listening, why don't you go ahead and just tell people what that is, if they want to join it, how to do yeah. that. Yeah. So there's no formal thing. It's just, a, it's a Facebook page. So there's no formal like joining it. You can just go and like it. And I think there's something like 40 or 50 stages that I did over a couple of year period um, during, you know, this quote unquote journey. And I was um, at the very beginning, like I said, I was learning my gear and stuff. So I would make stages that forced me to use the gear uh, in a conventional and an unconventional manner. And I recorded it. And what I found that I was sharing it with uh, a couple of people, like via Facebook Messenger or text. And I'm like, man, I bet you a lot of people want, would want to see this. Or at least if they see that I'm this motivated to make these videos, it might motivate other people to put forth this amount of effort. Um, those are my two main beginning motivators. But the second part was I realized that when I was recording it, I was trying harder. And because I knew people were going to watch it. And the reason I say that is because most dry fire scenarios at people's house when they're dry firing, it's a very loose practice environment. And in my opinion, it doesn't really simulate shooting a rifle or shooting at a match. But when I recorded this and I had the timer going and I knew somebody was watching, and that was the important part for me, I knew somebody was going to watch, whether it was one person or 500 or 5,000, I treated it like it was me shooting that stage at a match. And there's something about that to me. I perform well under pressure. If I go to the range, I'm like the world's worst practice, you know, training, go to the range and just shoot 50 rounds type guy. Uh, I'm getting better at it and I'm better at it now than I ever was. But if you put that 
level of pressure and you know that people are watching uh, and that the timer is running, then I was treating those stages very, very real, like very, like they were a real match. So I recorded a bunch of those stages. Um, sometimes they were gear related. Like there is a stage where you have to adjust your bipod on the clock. And that's where um, I had a stage where I was just super uncomfortable doing that. So I brought that home. Uh, a lot of them are from matches where I got a very low score on that particular stage and I would come home and recreate it. Um, and then there's other stages where I, I would change gear or be trying out a new reticle in a scope or holdovers or stuff like that. These are all things that like, hopefully it's not the first time you experience this task in a match, like I'm giving people reasons to try this at home. And, you know, I, I don't know. I did it for me personally. It was a selfish, you know, self-growth type thing. But I figured if I shared it, it might motivate other people. So um, you can just get on the Facebook page. And I haven't, I'm hoping you're going to call me out on this. I haven't done one in probably over a year, but the content is still there. And I think it's still valuable. So it's worth bringing it up. But um, yeah. I, I think you're probably going to ask me, like, how much do you dry fire these days? <laughs> at, at some point well, you compete like, a lot right so yeah. i think that, that you know there's a difference when you know that, that that's one thing that my opinion is probably different than a lot of people about about a lot of things first of all i'm gonna go back i'm gonna like cover some things that you hit i do not subscribe to the social media concept of if you're not constantly pumping out relevant new things that you're gonna lose you know, like there's something to be said for here's 10 drills. They're universal. They're going to be good for you to practice for the rest of your life. If you put out those 10 drills 10 years ago, I wouldn't expect there to be any updates for the last 10 years because right. they are what they are if they still have relevancy. So I think that that there's a difference that all of us face with social media and, you know, especially podcasts, like it's kind of ironic because I got to pump out podcasts and, you know, I'm trying to generate revenue and all this stuff. But I do think that it, if people expect to always be given the new shiny greatest thing, they're never going to ever have the time to try any of it. Cause next week there's going to be another one next week. There's going to be another one next week. And, and like you said, you know, you get used to the bag you have get used to the rifle you have, and train and you're going to be way better off, but we're constantly bombarded with new, 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 new. And I think it is changed the way we think. And it's a real conflict for not only myself, but I think for shooters too, because you see way more shooters asking about gear, equipment, bags, this, you know, I tried this technique, but then next week I tried this technique and I saw this video online and then, you know, that didn't change my shooting. And then the next week I did this because these guys said to do this It's like, dude, so you watched a video and you went to the range the next day. You didn't see that, you know, all of a sudden you went from like a mid pack shooter to a winner. So that now you think that wouldn't make you better. So then you went to somebody else's training thing and tried that yeah. and it didn't change your shooting. And it's like, okay, well, uh, okay. You know, like if you can't juggle, you watch a video on YouTube. My guess is the next day you're not going to juggle like them right? <laughs> it's going to take some time and effort and you're going to have to put everything else blinders to it for a dedicated period of time. So for your dry fire group thing, if you haven't updated it, I don't care. I think that's fucking awesome. Cause that basically to me, that means if it's still up and people still use it, 
and it actually has value, right? So, so I think about yeah. that differently. And secondly, you compete all the time, right? You have podcasts, miles to match. I'm driving to a match right now. I'm driving right now to a match. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. You guys record all your podcasts, literally driving together to matches. You know, th- there's something to be said for, you know, you only have so much time in the day. So if you're shooting matches all the time, that substitutes a lot of things. But a lot of people can't shoot the number of matches that you do. And, and that's where I think you come in with the dry fire stuff, right? Well, I would just I would just be careful by saying just because somebody shoots matches a lot means that they don't need a dry fire. And I think mine was a transition from the fact that I learned all I needed to learn for the most part from dry fire. And then after that, you either dry fire to stay sharp or you shoot matches to stay sharp or you go to the, tra- uh, day, the, the, the range and you do live fire to stay sharp. I'm way past the stage of learning uh, the core concepts and I'm just at, in like that maintenance mode, you know? So I do dry fire, um, just not as much. And it's more of a chore for me to record it these days. So I don't, I know what I'm looking for when I do it. And, um, and I just get it done real quick. So I do still dry fire. It's just, like I said, it's just more of a chore for me to make the videos anymore. And if somebody is as motivated as I was back then and wants to take over adding to that page, I mean, by all means, like let's talk. Cause I, I I think people do, they are motivated by peers and peers' success and peers' drive, you know, their friends and, and people around them. So if that page like continues to have on some regular frequency, uh, somebody that can come up with some stages or, or tools or whatever, you know, I think it, I think, like you said, it stands alone, but it could keep, it could keep going, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. So let me ask you this. I'm going to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit. You go to a lot of matches, but there aren't that many good shooters at the matches, right? And and people are going to argue with me and tell me that I hate competition and shit like that, but I'm going to say it anyway. Like, you you know, the average competition you go to, there's what, like five or six good shooters and then five or six like decent shooters that could do well, but but just as often do worse, right? Uh, and And then, you know, what I mean by good shooters, they're constantly like top 10, like, they're not going to go to a match. Well, if they say they're constantly top 10, then there's got to be at least 10 of them, right? <laughs> well, whatever. But, I mean, because you get it. I mean, shit happens, right? But, but, but what yeah. I mean by a good shooter is every match they go to, yeah. they're performing yeah, pretty consistently. There's a certain right? percentage, but, like maybe 5% are, are, that are there have a chance to win the match, 10%. And then there's a couple of wild cards. So I guess I'm not but, sure. But that's not, that's not my point. point. Yeah. Like, no, no, no. That, that, that wasn't the point. I was just saying like, you know, the, the, there's not, there's not huge incentive if you're going to compete to, because you're already in contention to win when you go to a match. But let's say I said, Chad, in three months, you know, the top, the top 30 shooters, if you made a list of who are the best 30 shooters in the world, you know, you're going to competition every three months to compete against those guys. Like, let's say there's like the NASCAR for shooting or something like that. And, and, and so, or I don't know anything about NASCAR, so maybe that's not good. Let's just say we came up with a, you know, a world cup circuit and the first of every month, I know I'm changing the rules here. The first of every (laughs) month from March to, you know, for nine months, you're going to compete against the top 30 shooters in the world would you dry fire more? That's a good question. Uh, it depends on, personally, I probably wouldn't because like I said, it's 
it's run its course for me. I understand what rifle natural point of aim is. I understand what my body's natural point of aim is. And I understand how to get in into and out of those positions. I know my limitations. Um, the live, live fire probably is more valuable to me at this point. So I'd rather go to the range and shoot some live rounds. But uh, I think that there's still so much opportunity for improvement in the other 90% of the shooters. And, you know, that's the bulk of the sport is all those other shooters. So, I mean, I'm catering to those people with our podcast. You are doing the same thing with your podcast, or at least the ones that are motivated to move up to the top. So I think that it's, if you're all those other shooters, absolutely, you should drive fire more. Right. So the vision that came, and it's totally fiction, but maybe somebody could relate to it. I'm imagining like, you know, one of those old Kung Fu movies where everybody's fighting and fighting and practicing and doing all this shit, all this shit, all this shit. But then you got like the masters and they just sit on a rock all day. And, <laughs> and so if you're, if you're shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting, but ultimately the best shooters are just sitting on a rock all day, like that would be this argument philosophically or, or cognitively. I mean, there's got to be something that we could, you know, make, make a bridge, even though it's a fictional concept of at some point you've embodied the physical skills the spiritual cognitive lifestyle you know all that stuff would would justify better shooters moving away from just going to the range and shooting rounds to to doing less right and i guess like when i think about if let's say you were like chris i want you to train me for the world cup I would have you dry fire a lot personally. And I know how good you are. I know how smart you are. And I would be having you do more cognitive stuff because I know if I take all the good shooters and we just extract where they put a bullet, it's all pretty much the same. So what separates those shooters? Right. And, and, yeah. and but emotionally, right. Emotionally we're attached to the shooting but when it comes to the results that we want, I don't think at a high level it has anything to do with what we've labeled the activity and the results that we want. I think the results that we want are coming from that cognitive process that, that good shooters seem to get more often than not. And then that medium shooter, like you might win a match, but then you might get 60th place. And then you might get, you know fourth or 10th place, but then you might get 30th place. And those people are like, okay, the conditions were just right. And they matched how I train, or it was at my home range or, you know, whatever, but, but any little tweak and they can't adjust. And all of a sudden they fall back to mid pack. And it's like, okay, well, if we extract those top three sh scores, you look just like the other guys that all of their scores are, you know, like, you know, like think about the PRS guys that, shoot their first three matches of the season and they have 300 points. Yeah. It's different than a shooter that gets 300. I guess they don't, my guess is nobody's going to have 300 points that has those swings in the first place. But my guess is you can get a shooter that gets three top 10, three top 20 to 30, and then a handful of worse ones. And, and on paper, they don't look any different. And so like to make a short story even longer, this Kung Fu master that just sits on a rock in the woods, but you go up to him and ask him, you know, how do I become the world's greatest Kung Fu fighter? And he just fucking owns you. Right. Um, that awareness 
I think, can almost exclusively be capitalized by dry fire with paper references on the way to that. But at some point, I, I feel like, man, we don't even need to shoot. Um, once you get it all, given the parameters that you're going to perform on. And uh, yeah, I don't know I, if that inspires you. A lot of things are jumping out. A lot of the things you're saying are jumping out to me. Like, I remember going to a pro match one time, and uh, this was when, and he still is, like Ken Sanoski is on fire this year uh, that I'm talking about here. And he shows up, and he shows up early to the train-up day. Um, I don't think he fired a single round, like, all day. We're just chilling and hanging out and whatever. And me, I wasted all my energy that Friday um, just trying as hard as I could. And he ended up destroying me. I'm pretty sure he won the whole match. But it just goes to say that sometimes and most times, just because you try harder, just because you put in more time, it doesn't exactly equal the results. And I think what you're trying, what you were trying to point out is something similar to where you need to have an understanding. You need to have a good mental cognitive process to get yourself through the most difficult aspects of your performance. But at some point, um, that stuff outweighs and you can't, you, you can actually try too hard and expend too much energy, mental and physical on the wrong things. So maybe dry fire would benefit people more yeah. if they did it Another all thing, the time and more often. I think like pretty recently I said somewhere because people have reached out. Uh, you know, I said like, my guess is if, if Jake Fibber took a year off, you know, when he came back in a year, and I just picked on Jake because everybody knows Jake, you know, I said, like, look, if he took a year off shooting and did whatever, you know, like farm potatoes, if somebody gave him a rifle a year later, my guess is he's going to be top 10 because because he's just that kind of guy and he's embodied it like crazy. And and I think that's that's kind of the example that, that I was driving yeah. to. And then the other one is that I get a lot of people asking me about my four plus one training program because there's not a lot of information out there on it. And they're like, well, you know, I'm going to train, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And then like, when's, when's the right time to do this? And I pretty much have like a canned response. I'm going to ask you to do things that are so different than what you normally do, that it's going to be hard for you to accept that whatever you do now, you're going to have to disassemble because what you've done till now has got you kind of plateaued where you are. And in order to move past that, you basically have to like, disconnect your emotional ties to but 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 you know chad said this and phil said this and morgan said this and and and, and say like look that's great but you have to do something almost entirely different to get better because you're holding yourself back and yeah and and i think that that that's like you know the dry fire thing it's like man if people don't dry fire why not like, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, you're not as good as you want to be. You know, the odds are anything else is going to make you better. Why not try something? You know, but, 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 you know, I usually go to the range and shoot 100 rounds and, you know, at the thousand yard Ipsic and, you know, call it good. Well, that's cool. But, you know, why do you miss targets? <laughs> How's that working for you? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know the answer, but I do know that basically all of us, whatever we do is keeping us where we're at. So whatever well, I think we it do, comes back to the very beginning of this conversation where we were talking about like, how do you know if you're doing the right dry fire? I think the right activity during dry fire and how do you know if it's being successful? I think 
dry firing in isolation without somebody giving you pointers, unless you had the mindset that I had at the beginning, like somehow, like I said, I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but I was, had an understanding of what I was, what the purpose was, but unless you have some mentor or you're using a dry fire training group, or you have somebody like yourself, that's coaching you on the side and you're sending videos back and forth saying, yeah, man, your, your leg is not at a perfect 90 degree or whatever. Or I see that there's no support under your, your butt when you're in the double kneeling position or whatever the case may be. Like, it's very hard for most people to just in isolation, do more dry fire and get a benefit from it. Uh, I don't, I don't know if that, if you agree with that, but I think that just more does not always equal better. Right. Totally. Totally. And I do think that really ultimately everybody can do it self-guided. I mean, that's why we have the podcast. That's why we craft targets are out there. That's why your dry fire group is free. I think time is money. So there it justifies having people that teach shooting because it could sh- it could shorten the gap. But if, if part of the process is you're fascinated with discovery and learning, you know, it's going to take you more time, but it could be more rewarding. But if your desire is to shave time, you know, the time and money equation there justifies having help from somebody. But I totally think that, you know, all you have to do is start thinking like, okay, you get behind your rifle and whatever you're doing, the reticle ends up elevated. You know, what could cause an ele- elevated reticle? Make yeah. a list. Like, what, what is it? Well, shit, that's a really vague question, right? So it should have a really long list. Why did the reticle yeah, and go if up? You're- and if you're not comfortable enough to make that list or you don't have enough knowledge to make that list, that's something you need to fix too. Like if you can't answer that question, what are the things that would make it uh, an elevated radical, you know? And I, just the hammer, just the firing pin falling will move your radical if you don't have a perfect uh, natural point of aim on the bag and the, and the body. I mean, for those that haven't done a lot of dry fire, uh, they might think that's normal. Yes, the radical could move vibrate wiggle but in a perfect dry fire uh scenario where your rifle's at npa your body's at npa you make a perfect 90 degree trigger press that radical should stay where it's at you know and right. that's the ultimate goal of it and so if if you're honest with yourself like it will tell the tale and then when you see it going left to right you're thinking well what are all the things that could be making it go left to right i don't even have recoil here and i'm seeing five tenths of a mil of movement in my reticle to the right every time like let's figure this out sometimes it takes the video camera uh over top of you like bird's eye view to see your how you're squared up to the rifle sometimes you need a close-up on the side to see your trigger press sometimes you need a far away from the side and if you can't figure it out you got to make friends with somebody that can help you figure it out because if you're if your reticle moves a half mil uh with no recoil imagine what it's going to do when, <laughs> when you're shooting uh a six creed or something you know and that's not yeah, even a big yeah. caliber, but, but, uh, no, but those types no. of things. I have hundreds of pages of things that you see and possible explanations, and and all of them are, are plausible. Some are more likely than others, but but that list gets longer and longer and longer every week. I've been making it for, yeah. for years. Those lists, like, it's, it's an extremely complicated thing. And then what I like to do is just generalize back to, like, wild generalizations like well you know i think if, if you ask me like hey you know what's the difference between a pint-sized game changer with sand and a full-size game changer and i'm like well i, I bet it's about a tenth you know like you're gonna shoot 
about a tenth different than you normally do. And what about I if I get hit? Like, well, that's gonna. Yeah, it's, no, no. Well, yeah, probably ten pounds. But I think your groups. If you're a good shooter, it's gonna change your group. You know, by about a tenth. Mm-hmm. You know, mo- most of those subtle changes that people are curious about, we're really talking about a tenth, maybe two tenths difference if you start compounding gear stuff. But but those are those are differences in stability and stuff like that. But but actually, like so, even though it's not necessarily dry fire, it it, it leads on to maybe another episode, and it's a curiosity that I've had. And I've fiddled with, but I'm going to spend probably the second half of this year obsessively researching with myself as a guinea pig and, and then students. And that's the difference between and, – and, and Francis is probably another guy to get on here because he shoots rimfire. But, but the, the training with a rimfire or I'm going to be training with an air rifle that has no recoil versus training with, let's say, a 6.5 Creedmoor or a 308 that has recoil – I personally right now, just to like put my opinion out front, I think that they train two complementary kind of yin and yang of the circle of fundamentals. And, and, and so I think the air rifle trains natural point of aim. And I think, you know, recoil management is, um, can influence point of impact, right? So, so, um, you know, I think I, I separate natural point of aim <clears throat> from recoil management, and even though recoil management, a lot of purists would probably say, that, well, that's part of natural point of aim. Um, I separate the two, and I think that, th- that you need to train them separately, so I'm going to do that with an air rifle. But what are your thoughts on training with a no-recoil rifle versus heavy recoil rifle, or is it better to just train? Because I know Tate, Tate Streeter said, fuck that, just train with, you know, your competition gun, cheaper to swap a barrel and you don't need to worry about second rifles and a lot of good competitors, they just train with their competition gun and they do great. But some people really want a trainer or just a second, a second system. And, and, you know, just because I'm obsessive about learning about stuff, I'm going to dedicate a huge amount of time to air rifles. And so I got one from Utah air guns. And as soon as I can lift up, you know, as soon as I can lift 20 pounds, from my surgery um, and start training with an air rifle to try to collect data on the differences between, you know, dry fire to paper at a hundred a point of impact shift input output kind of stuff. And then doing the same thing with a, a, a rifle that recoils in a similar setup. What, what, what do you think about that? So um, I used to be pretty hard headed on this. Um, and now I'm a little more open-minded. I, I definitely agree with Tate Streeter that 90% of the time, training with your match rifle is the best case scenario because you're getting intimate with the exact setup, the exact recoil, and everything that you um, are going to be competing with. But that said, you can't separate the fact that dry fire will get you the most benefit the quickest. So unless you're in that zone where we're talking about where all those fundamentals are pretty sound, Dry fire is 100% your best bet. Now, the hybrid, the question in the middle is like, what about the air rifle slash 22? And I have, um, I've traditionally kind of stayed, not stayed away from it, just used it sparingly because I don't want to get lazy on recoil management. And I feel like I shot it so much a couple of years ago that I did get lazy at it. But I'm literally headed up the day before the match to a little small bore range that we have up at our club. And I'm going to, 
I'm going to burn all the ammo I brought, like hundreds and hundreds of rounds by doping out the range uh, and working on watching bullets fly and watching uh, and watching where my uh, where my misses end up. And then, you know, just without knowing all the ranges, I want to see if, how fast and how many shots it takes me to dope out every single target on the range. And there's like 40 of them out there. So I might be there till dark. Um, that said, I just, I think the time is best spent in, in that order, dry fire first, then live fire. A lot of people try the 22 and that's where they live. That's where they stay. And that's awesome too. Um, I know the 22 competitions are super fun. So, um, I guess, I don't know if that answers your question. I guess these days, my biggest bang for my buck is with my match rifle. That's my opinion. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, a lot of trainers are going to end up spending three or $4,000 anyway, you got to get a big rifle set up and you know, at what point is the cross? I hear cost benefit kind of stuff tossed around. It's like, man, it's going to be, hard. you're not going to be, you know, most, most people odds are they won't be competing anymore by the time it, by the time that cost threshold shifts. But, but I do think that, you know, I'm just really curious about, and I've talked to guys like Boyd Linder who are going to the, the world championships for rim fire and, you know, guys that, that, you know, do it a hell of a lot more than I do. I noticed that when I, I don't like my 22 really like, but, uh, I can really drive it hard and it shoots great, but I don't have, I don't shoot it the same as my bolt gun. But, but if I shoot it the same as my bolt gun, I do see effects. So what are the effects that you could use to bridge that gap? Like I, I'm, I'm really curious about it. So, so it's worth spending three or $4,000 on a setup for me to, to train that just to learn like, well, I want to add a chapter to my notes of, do this, see this, do this, see this. And, and I want to be able to separate the things that I see from, are they universal regardless of recoil, right? Or are they specific to recoil? I think that's what you can separate with, with the two. And then we're going to bring the air rifles to our classes and say like during the fundamental eval, like, Hey, shoot this rifle a couple of times. Cause I want to see where the things go. And then no, like, is, is your issue a recoil issue or is your issue, you know, uh, uh, underlying fundamental issue and sometimes you, it's hard to separate those two because um, obviously with a 308 you have both and and one thing can can mask another and and so um, you know I want to I want to hash that out more but I, you know I, I think um, you, you can't argue with about people but but what came to mind when you were talking about that is that like man you know if if, if you go to a brain surgeon and, and say like, you know, I need you to just, you know, come in and fill in for me to do a knee replacement. Like they're going to be kind of awkward, right? I mean, not, not that they would actually ever do that, but, 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 you know, the, the idea here is that like, if you take a brain surgeon who's using like computers and, and technological things that could be very still and do very, very micro surgical procedures and, and you swap them with a guy that does knee replacements, who's, you know, basically got saws and hammers, like they're both at the top, top end of performance, right? That, you know, they're both surgeons, both physicians, just like shooters. Um, you, to do your specific niche, you have to specialize. And I think it would be crazy for somebody trying to win the AG Cup to shoot anything but their competition game, right? Because you're a brain surgeon training for brain surgery, not a brain surgeon trying to go to a knee replacement competition. And, and, and so there, there are different things that when you dedicate yourself to specialization that assumes something entirely different but a lot of shooters you know they're like man i like to shoot my pistol I like to shoot my carbine I like to hunt I like to do this how do i get better 
And that's much different than I want to be a brain surgeon, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not calling PRS shooters. I guess I am calling them brain surgeons. So you're welcome. But um, <laughs> Well, but no, I, I think like your you points are all valid. I think, yeah, I think your points are all valid there. And one thing I just thought of that I think that the 22s and the air rifles are really good at is um, reinforcing good, really good trigger control and follow through because there's a longer dwell time in, in the barrel with the bullet going third of the speed or whatever. So um, I think you can learn something by shooting and you know what, Chris, shooting is freaking fun. So let's just shoot them all. Okay. Let's, let's do it all. <laughs> Heck yeah. All right, man. Well, I have to, um, I just got home and I have to get ready to go to an appointment and you are getting yourself to a match. So good luck at the match this weekend. And maybe we could talk on the drive home if you're not recording a miles to matches episode and we could, um, do the next level. We, because this has been, um, Oh shit, like long time. It's gonna um, be a long yeah. episode. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of bullet points about dry fire that we didn't cover too. So uh maybe we can link those in, or maybe you can talk to Francis about you know how he used dry fire to speed up or whatever. So um no, I don't no, let's, let's talk about getting let's faster. do part two. We'll okay. just make this will be part one, and then we'll do part two and we'll do the bullet points. Okay, sounds good, man. And, and then if you want Francis in, I can ask him or you can ask him or we could just do a separate podcast. The Yeah, I mean, there's there's stuff that I learned from him or because of him, because of him analyzing my videos. That's why I was bringing up the fact that you should have somebody else review them if you're kind of stagnating. So I can talk about those or or whatever. We can include him, too, and, and he can jump in and, and weigh in on, the, on it. So um, I think that there's plenty more to talk about with it, and I think people will get benefit from it heck yeah well then everybody gets to stay tuned because that is coming all right man well uh (laughs) good luck this weekend and we'll we'll chat hopefully soon again because because it's fun to talk to you yep sounds good man thanks have a good day Mm -hmm. bye Hey, I wanted to talk to you guys about a partner, and that partner is Cobalt Kinetics. If you go to Cobalt Kinetics and look, they have got precision and competition carbines, and I want you to look through their offerings. They are the carbine that I've been competing with for the last couple of years, and every competition that I've gone to with their 223 that I compete with, I've left with a trophy. Every single one, which I think is pretty impressive. So an affordable, well-built, well-designed gas gun. And I can tell you that it has worked for me and it doesn't break the bank. I'm going to have more to say about them as they have products rolling out. But I wanted to start off with that so that you understand that I have intimate experience with their systems and their systems perform at a level that can win trophies. So check them out. Cobalt kinetics.